everyone. This is another episode of Carolyn Talks for those who are here's What Happened podcast. And today I'm joined by a special guest, writer and director Shatara Michelle Ford. And we're going to discuss her debut feature film, Test Pattern, which I think is an amazing film that discusses race, sexism, um, assault, how the government fails citizens, especially women with regards to testing and medical and uh, medical procedures. And we're going to get into all of these, the wonderful aspects of the film, such as the cinematography, which I think was like really well done, and her use of silence. And I'm going to ask Shatara to introduce herself, and then we'll get into the film. So Shatara? Hi. Um, so yeah, I'm Shatara Michelle Ford. Um, I'm named after a Thundercat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really am. Um, and I am the writer and director and co-producer of Test Pattern. Yes, thank you so much for being here with me today. So one of the things I want to start with regards to the film is I always like to ask people their inspiration for creating a story because like, everything starts with an idea. And for you, what was the idea and the impetus for you beginning this story and making like this the the discussion about rape and race be what you discussed for your very first debut film it's a pretty because it's a pretty heavy topic yeah i mean i as a black person in america i find that my existence is heavy, heavy so, so um i don't I, I think even i think for me what i'm most interested in um as an artist is expressing the complexities of like human existence. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations around the concept of black joy, that we don't do enough black joy. Like, you know, there's always these like downtrodden stories about black people, especially in America. And um, I think both are extremes that are unrealistic. The truth is, is that in most moments, there's, for I think black folks, like, we have great resilience and the ability to have joyful moments within really dark periods. I would argue being a Black person in America right now is an incredibly dark period. Um, and yet I'm still able to live my life um, and navigate the systems that make life very complicated for me. So therefore, any film I make, if I'm going to talk about Black people, um, is going to be complicated, you know? It's not just this like very simple thing because that is what our lives are. Um, so there's that. So I think what I was most interested in um, for Test Pattern in particular, the nugget of the idea was in a, like a combination of a lot of things that were happening at once for me um, in fall of 2017, which is I, was thinking a lot about uh, women's bodily autonomy. Um, I was thinking a lot about rape kits because I'd spent a lot of time researching um, the backlog, but discovering that the backlog wasn't even, you know, the biggest issue with rape kits. It was the accessibility of them. Um, I have a background in political science and sociology. And so I kind of see everything through that lens. And I noticed major policy failures due to the fact that, again, once again, the United States does not center um, 
it's vulnerable or it's marginalized. It centers cis hetero white men. Um, so therefore, if you are not that, and the more you deviate from that, the more likely it is that you are going to fall through the cracks when you're trying to have any system work for you. Um, so I just kind of thought that in terms of being a black woman searching for a rape kit because she was um, a victim of sexual assault, um, that's a lot of like stuff coming together at once that I don't really need to create. That's just what it is. Like literally to be that person, there's a lot going on. The thing that I threw in there that I thought was important was um, having the foil be a white person, you know? Um, and I, especially in 2017, was doing a lot of thinking and talking about white allyship. One, because after Donald Trump was elected president, there were a lot of white liberals who seemed very confused by that. And to no one else's surprise, did that really, was that really a thing? And I think it was the first spark for um, this particular generation of white allies, as you call them, to um, start questioning their role and educate themselves and like all of the inequity that's happening and like, what should they do? And so um, I was paying attention to those conversations. Um, moreover, I, I'm married to a white British guy and you know, it's been a nice experience in some ways. What I mean by that is the fact that he's not American. Um, mm -hmm. It's nice because he doesn't have any skin in the game. Like for me to be like, America is racist. America is upheld by systems of oppression like white supremacy. He's like, oh yes, I see that. And, you know, I can accept that because that isn't really saying anything about me. And I, you know, I'm, I'm this outsider. That doesn't mean that the UK doesn't have problems. I lived there for a while too. There's a reason why I'm back, but um, <laughs> but um, I think that I'm you know I'm also really interested in interracial relationships, um, especially as sites of negotiation when it comes to power dynamics. Um, all relationships have power, like imbalances, um, but I think one that isn't addressed enough or examined are the power balances that exist within interracial relationships, especially I think um, something as specific as white men and black women. Um, and there's tons of history in America for why that would be something worth exploring. And there's a lot of dark territory that comes with that. So um, that was the thing that I added that made it so complicated. You know, I don't, I personally don't think that um, assault and rape should be considered heavy, you know, taboo topics because they are so common in our lived experience. Um, I think what makes this film heavy and complicated is the fact that we're adding all of these other things, but particularly the point of having to navigate relationships with white people. Mm, yeah, you touched on so many things um, that a lot of it was what was occurring to me. I, first, I'm gonna start with the political, the political aspect of it because there's a scene where um, it's not even a scene. It's basically this is um, there is a sequence for I would say the entire second act of the film, which is about the bureaucracy of mm -hmm. trying to find um, a, a rape kit and even just going to the to the clinic to be treated and 
just even getting the beginnings of getting treatment just to ask for help but you got to do all of these steps and i just kept thinking politics affects us in so many ways and in ways that we don't even realize until a situation like this unfortunately occurs and you have this this woman um renisha played beautifully i think by Brittany. and mm -hmm. the word that keeps popping up in my head is uneasiness and she's uneasy for so many reasons but part of it is the bureaucracy where she's realizing everything around me is failing there's no one to support me i'm going to this clinic to get help and the people that should be helping me are failing me they're not listening to me they're not even looking at me and they don't have the tests that i need to, to help me in this situation and then there's the the doctor he's like i'm unqualified and i'm like really and then again it's a white man and it's white nurses it's white women and she's surrounded by all these white people and then when you think about american politics so much of it is determined by white men so much of it is determined by white people and it's you just and they just kept thinking Ooh, like to be a black woman in North America, to be a black woman in America, there's so many ways that the patriarchy and white politics affects us and, and affects women like her. And you're just like thinking, how do you navigate this? How are you able, how are you supposed to be able to process all of this? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the most important things about the film where you show how these small things, everything is almost like a domino effect. And mm -hmm. it all it all starts some room, some office where these politicians are coming up with some bill or some legislation. And then it goes down to a company where they're like, okay, we have these HR rules and regulations that we have to follow. Mm -hmm. And then you have the nurses and the doctors who have to follow these, these hospital regulations. And then you have the patients like Renisha. And like they're the end result of everything. But all of these actions begin at the top. And no one ever really thinks how these rules and regulations don't I'm what's the word I'm looking for? Dictated. Yes. by white people affects the affects women like her at the bottom right and yes. that's just kept thinking like it's like it's everything from from for her for her whole experience everything is just about how basically her life is being dictated by white people who have who don't even know her mm-hmm mm-hmm mm -hmm. but you know again it that's by design right you know the the united states was founded by founded huh. Well, it was, but it was conquered by a whole bunch of white men and then established by a whole bunch of privileged landed white men who only really thought about themselves. And back then it was very explicit. Like the fact that even, you know, the constitution or declaration of independence only identifies human beings as men. Like there's no, if there's no inclusive language around that, the fact that women didn't have the vote, the fact that, you know, there were negotiations for how to count black bodies, the fact that we were not considered full people, um, it's all by design. So again, when I look at this, the situation that Renisha's in, it's not shocking to me. It's normal. Yeah. I think that she's in a particular situation where there are a lot of things at play, maybe more than your typical Black woman on a typical Tuesday, but um, it doesn't change the fact that this is, this is normal. Yeah. Um, and like, 
like I know online, like because I'm always on Twitter, and like, we talk a lot about politics and stuff on Twitter. Everyone is always saying it's systemic racism, people. There's a difference, and I'm like, your film actually shows both systemic and systematic racism. Mm -hmm. Systemic is where is is ingrained in the system of how everything works. Where it is, it's so it's it's such a part of the of the fabric of of American society that you don't even notice it. Whereas systematic is where every single step is creating a roadblock. Yes, not only yes. for assessing work, but it's creating a roadblock for help. It's creating a roadblock for getting what you need. It's creating a roadblock for for making your life better. And I'm like, <laughs> like everything is like is one after the other. And like when I look at at, 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 like at a character like Renisha, I'm just thinking, oh, to be a black woman is so hard. And and I think that's something I probably say more <laughs> more during our discussion. But like your film really does show how women um that women face so much obstacles. And like one of them is in the workplace. And like, uh, like the, in the beginning of the film, like she's having a discussion with her friend Amber, and they're talking about how politics of. And you, you mentioned Trump, and mm -hmm. and the things and his his election has impacted Black people, and, and they they talk about the politics and all of that. And then you see other ways that not even Trump himself, but also just the small ways where she talks about her work, and she doesn't even define what her job is. Mm -hmm. She like we know straight off the bat, Evan is a tattoo artist. He says that. But for Renisha, she says, oh, I work in corporate. And like, I, I wanted to know if that was deliberate because for me, I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking that could be, is basically, she's basically any black woman in corporate America. And you don't have, she doesn't have to be working for Fortune 500 companies. She'd be working for a small independent um, corporation. But the things that she, the, the obstacles that she faces and the microaggressions or even macro racial aggressions that she faces is something that many black women will face daily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I think, I think because of Renisha's experience in corporate America, getting an MBA, like, you know, navigating all of these very, very, very like white male centric worlds um, where there is a standard or a norm that does not include like our culture and our bodies. Um, it's made Renisha incredibly, especially at that point when she's talking about her job on the first date, it's made her very guarded. Mm -hmm. I think that Renisha, it takes a lot for Renisha to open up. And I think that's one of the reasons why she also wasn't specific um, in that moment because she doesn't know who this man is. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't wanna say something negative that could give back to the wrong person. Um, it's, but it's also the other thing where it's like, does it really matter where in corporate America I work? It's all the same. Mm -hmm. Right, and like we, so so this is I think a great segue to get into the relationship aspect of it. So for Renisha and Evan, I think they're very interesting in the fact that they may seem like total opposites, not necessarily with regards to race, but also their personalities. Where Renisha seems to be a bit more reserved, and mm -hmm. um, Evan is a bit more um, open. And like one of the scenes, and I think it's a very interesting scene where. The, the first thing they're being intimate, he he's kind of like taken a bat ass shot that she has a tattoo on her hip. But then you see she has all then later we see that she has a tattoo a tattoo sleeve. Um what was it? No, a sleeve tattoo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and it's just like you see they do have these things in common and then they also do have a, a love of dolls and they have in, they have interest. And I wanted to ask you um about building their relationship. So when you were developing the script, um was there anything that you changed once you saw the chemistry between Will and Brittany that helped with you, that helped with you developing the relationship at the beginning and then where the film would progress? 
That's a really good question. Um, no, I kind of did it the other way around. I cast Brittany first and I had chemistry readings with, with other actors to kind of get a sense of like how she as Renisha responded to them. Um, and in the chemistry reading for Renisha and Evan played by, you know, Will and Brittany, it just worked really, really well in surprising ways. I honestly wasn't anticipating it. And again, the script, the, so I, the, the script is really short um, intentionally to give the actors space to kind of create and expand upon, you know, what I've given them on the page. And so we did do a bit of rehearsals together where, you know, I just gave, you know, Will and Brittany the opportunity to like improvise life together, which I do think is helpful. I would have loved to have done that for more than I was able to, um, but it's something that, um, I think was a foundational practice. So it's just kind of like one day we all got together and I was like, well, um, why don't y'all pretend like, you know, you just came home from work. Um, it's not this particular day that's in the script. It's another day, three years before then and just feel it out. And then I was like, you know, what does it look like to, you know, have a conversation about like doing chores two years after this, you know, like just kind of explore that. And that was me trying to establish the foundation between them. Um, but the script never really changed beyond what they decided to kind of like improvise within it. So, you know, when it was time to film the, the script or film the movie, um, we would look at a scene. It might be three sentences long with like five lines of dialogue. And I said, you know, you know where point A is, you know where point B is. I don't care how long it takes you to get there. I don't care what other words you add. I just need, you, like, you just take the time that you need and you take the route that you wanna take to get to the end of that scene. Um, and so that I think also helps create like authenticity um, and genuine kind of connection between two people because they do have a lot of ownership around how to move around with each other. Yeah, no, I, I, I think they they did a fantastic job because they haven't, at the beginning of the film, which I think is super important because of how the story develops, they have this easy chemistry, like you can, like to me, they felt like genuine friends and they felt like they were very comfortable ar around each other and like they felt like, I remember thinking when after they eventually got together, they moved into, I'm assuming this is Will's bungalow. That's what it's called, right? Because I call it a bungalow because that's what we call bungalow? it. Bungalow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, so when they moved into Will's um, house, and bungalow, um, like the, the, just even the setting, everything feels comfortable. Whereas where Renisha lived before was this high upscale condo where everything is, you know, like clean and it's chrome and polished marble mm -hmm. and their house and the new house is filled with soft blues and like creams and like, it just looks homey. It feels lived in and you're thinking and knowing what's going to come in the film. I'm just thinking their house, their house is not going to be the same. It's going to look the same aesthetically, but the, the feeling that that feeling of comfort, that feeling of easiness is going to change. Mm -hmm. And which I think is one of the most impressive things with what you did with this film is how the tone of the film changes and the tone of, and the feel of their relationship changes as the film progresses. And I wanted to ask you, how did you go about creating this tone? Because for me, it was almost like this physical sensation. I got watching it right from ease and, and, and comfortable to being just quite in this uneasiness throughout the film. And like, even for the last shot, I'm like, their home does not feel like a, um, their mm -hmm. house doesn't feel like a home anymore. 
So mm -hmm. could you tell me a little bit about building that atmosphere and that and that theme with not only the actors but just aesthetically as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for me as a director, I'm always really interested in using all the tools in my toolbox besides dialogue to express a feeling or an idea. So um, mise-en-scene is something that is an important approach and tool for me. Um, and I think that by really paying careful attention to the color schemes as motifs, the sounds, the camera angles, the, the camera movements, um, you can change you know, something that's really bright and airy to something that's kind of fills you with dread with not much work, you know, yeah. you change a color here or there, you, you know, you put on a different lens. Um, so it was just all really thought through, you know, we knew where we were in the script when we were shooting it. And we knew that if this is supposed to feel, you know, filled with tension, we have the, you know, all the extra tools to make that happen. Um, I think more specifically, something that um, is, I think an after, not only an afterthought, but a, it was intentional, but there's no like um, intervention. What I mean by that is there's a lot of silence and there's a lot of time where you're just kind of sitting with characters and processing things. And I think contemporary cinema, especially the commercial stuff, there's like something happens like an explosion every other minute. And so there's not really enough time to think. And so if I'm sitting and letting the camera just kind of like unfold things in front of you, um, you have the time to think about it. And you're the one that's creating that tension because you know there's something wrong. And so, I, that's, I think that's where they're, where the biggest kind of tool that isn't like deliberate in the sense of like me adding like some, you know, creepy score or slow moving the camera. Sometimes it's just sitting there and letting you catch up. Yeah, you mentioned there's a lot, the film does have a lot of quiet moments and some of those quiet moments is because there's a lack of dialogue or it's because they're just like very still and not moving like the scene where um where the day after what happened she she goes home and she's lying on the and she's lying on next on the ground next to the bed and she's just like and I think Brittany, I, I I I honestly have to praise Brittany because she did a fantastic job with her her facial expressions and just her little movements where she she like one moment she has her hand up by her mouth and you can tell she's in that contemplative state and then the next moment she's just laying on and she just looks like she doesn't know what to do. And those moments are quiet. But then there's other moments that where at the clinics and at the hospitals, because they go to more than one, where we don't hear anything from them, but we have the music. And the music is discordant, it's, it's noisy, it's, the set, it's on selling. But then you, you putting like, you go from like violin, like screeching violins to Swan Lake. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I just think the way how you do build attention and these and these things don't actually take you up because you would think that going from from one type of music to like Tchaikovsky's I'm Smaller, you would think, oh, this would take me out of it. But I'm like, nah, it actually plays and works really well. Could you tell me about the music that you and composer and Robert Ouyang, Bruce Lee, like how did you go through your music selections and how did you go for picking like the score for specific scenes and then using like classical music for others? Yeah, um, I mean, I think there's those are two separate things. So um, Rob was handling the score, 
Um, and he was the composer for that. And so what Rob and I did was sit down and kind of just talk through the script, you know? I think for any composer I had on this project, they would have to understand what it was before. And like, and I shouldn't be the one to tell them. They should be able to know because I think there's like an innate understanding that kind of like pushes the creativity. Um, if Rob was spending a lot of time or any composer, if they were having to spend a lot of time trying to catch up or trying to like understand it all, that would get in the way of like what we could kind of come up together um, with with the music. So the first thing is Rob read the script and he knew exactly what I was doing. And he was like, gosh, this makes me feel like all type of ways. Like I'm angry, I'm icky, but you know, also the stuff that you're saying about just like men in general, like I get it. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing that we did um, once that was confirmed is that we kind of broke down the scenes that we knew we wanted some sort of placement um, of composition. And we just kind of talked about what were the goals of each scene and like, and then I just let them go. I let them watch, you know, all the cuts. I let, I let them watch like everything, um, ask tons of questions and they went away and came back to me a few months later with, with pieces. And we just kind of kept going back and forth from there. So that's how the score came together. The other thing I'll say is that um, I really wanted to make sure that we had certain sounds that were associated with certain emotional states and people. So like there's certain strings that are associated with Renisha and there's certain strings that are associated with um, Evan and there's a different sound when they're together. Um, and th which is those two instruments coming together. Um, that was important too. I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of, you know, composition, I'd say that's the majority of what's going on there. But I get a lot of questions about Tchaikovsky and that's a different, that's a different department. Um, Alison Rosenfeld, who is our music supervisor on this film and just like all around good person, good friend of mine. She, um, she kind of knows how I like to use music in general. And I already had an idea about putting this like piece in, in that um, hospital scene. And that was really inspired by, I think like Kubrick, honestly. And I was just kind of thinking about the ways he used waltzes and, or the specific waltz in 2001 and what that kind of invoked. And I related to that. And that was the kind of idea that I wanted to go with um, to communicate in that scene that, you know, what Evan and Renisha are doing now is pretty much like a refined dance. You know, yeah. they, they know all, they have the timing down everything is pretty, you know, like perfect in terms of like the beats that they need to touch to get to one point to another point. Um, but also it's like absurd and that it's absurd that it's so mundane and so like performed or so rehearsed. Um, so that was the idea with that. But, you know, Allison and I talked a lot about if that was the right song and we played with some other things and, um, but ultimately that's the thing that felt really, really, really right. Yeah, you mentioned the mundanity of it. And that's one of the other things I think that maybe we talked like went back a bit to the politics where these things, when you when you look at um the bureaucracy and where these things have become so everyday, 
where like you have a, a woman like Renisha who's gone through an extremely emotionally and psychologically destructive event and she is slowly breaking down on the inside but on the outside she has to keep her composure because we know as again as black women like she's thinking i can't be too loud i can't lose my i can't lose my my, my anger mm -hmm. i can't lose my patience and on you you have her there trying to control herself and then you have evan losing his patience and getting angry and upset and then on the other side and then like it's like a triangle and then on the opposite point of the triangle you have the clinic administrator she's like oh this is just a regular day for me give me your mm -hmm. you have the nurses oh this is just a regular a regular day for me let me go and get the doctor you have the the, the doctor himself is like oh this is just another day i can't treat you so mm -hmm. go to another clinic they go mm -hmm. to another clinic asking for a rate kit and you think that would and and engender some kind of sympathetic or empathetic response for the person like okay this is a delicate situation let me watch how i talk you're like nah go to the next hospital and and you said it is like that's the mundanity i mean it's the absurdity of it and that's I, like even in my notes i thought i'm like this is absurd that she she's going through this extremely traumatic experience and everyone is just treating it like she's asking to, she's asking for directions to the to the nearest dollar yeah. store yep no what like so when you have the you have all of that underscored with like music from Swan Lake, which is one of the most well-known ballets. And then when you think about Swan Lake, which is about the dark, the dark and like side of a Swan with psychological issues too. Um, I mean, it's like, I'm like, it kind of makes sense because it does highlight how absurd like things like rape are are treated in um in, in society, where you like you would think that this is the moment she would get simply risk people would want to take time to listen to her but no one is listening to her so she's kind of isolated isolated and surrounded by everyone just um like going about their daily lives and going from that so we talked to this first so you have the music underscoring all of that but i wanted to ask you about the cinematography i think it was very interesting about the way you used lighting and i wanted to ask you about your particular color choices because um for so for in the you use pink in a in strategic ways i think in a few scenes one is at the the bar where um renisha meets up with the with the man who eventually assaulted her and then um she's in the car where he's taking her to the hotel and she's bathed in like pink light and so i want to ask about the use of pink in those like if there's any particular reason you use pink and then there's yellow she was wearing yellow when the first day she's intimate with evan she's wearing a yellow dress mm -hmm. and then the day that she's she's um assaulted she's wearing a yellow dress again and i wanted to ask you about the significance of the colors you use carolyn you you this is the first interview i've had or even review where somebody's noticed that um <laughs> yeah renisha's color is yellow it just is that's what we've decided you know it was a combination of sitting with Ludovica Zadori, the cinematographer, Eloise Ayala, the production designer, and Brianna Rowe, the costume designer, and we picked yellow. And um, another color that you um, might have noticed, but you didn't touch on is blue, and that's yeah. Evan's color. <laughs> Which means that when Evan and Renisha are together, when things are good, it's green. Mm -hmm. Um, and we also tried to kind of express that idea with like the foliage that's in their house. Like that's why there's so many plants and and just like green things everywhere. But also like you'll see the separate kind of blues and yellows and you know that that's their stuff. Um, and then uh, in terms of the pink, again, it was more of like an intuitive choice. 
as in that's just the color that I went for, but that color is associated with her soul. It shows mm -hmm. up, that's where it is. And the idea also is that it's supposed to be like super saturated. It's like a, a very strong evocative color. Um, so now at any point when flashes of that moment come up, that's that's the color, you already know, you see the color what was happening. Um, so that was the idea. And again, that's sometimes that can feed a very subtle psychological thing. Because if you remember in the opening scene, she's with Mike um, on that bed and that color is everywhere. And then we don't see it again until we go to the bar. So something's kind of already in your deep subconscious, you know what's about to happen. Um, so that's what's really great about color too. Yeah, no, I, I noticed the blue because as I like I, I mentioned earlier, like their house in his house, like the wall is like this sea blue, and then you have it kind of reminded me of like a beach house, uh, which I think is probably what I'm calling a bungalow. Um, because at home, like for most beach houses, especially for rich people, you have like a lot of they use like a lot of like light blues or shades of blues, and then there's like cream, and I'm like, ah, it's comfortable. And then like you mentioned the the pink because yeah, the pink is in the bar, it's in the car, and it's in the hotel room, and even the hallway when she leaves. Mm -hmm. when she like the lights on the wall mm -hmm. are like reddish pinkish color which I'm like that's I'm like that has to be intentional because I don't think I've ever been to a hotel where you have like <laughs> fluorescent red lights on the wall and like she does flash back to those things and then I was thinking about it like she never wears anything pink in throughout the film and no one else wears pink mm -hmm. and then with regards to Mike being blue he does wear like his blue jeans right. his and then at the end the very very last scene where she comes home I, the, the thought I came into my head is like their home is murky now because like the wall on the outside in the veranda is like this mossy bluish teal color almost like my wall and the shirt he's wearing is kind of echoing that and it, it looks almost like he was blending into the background for for of the background of the house I'm like yeah he's lost like their their relationship is nowhere around and then with the the green you mentioned the blue and that is in my notes too like when after the whole day this whole awful day she's in the bathtub and she's like bathing this grayish blue light, which is a color we don't, I, I didn't see surrounding her before. And he's outside and he's facing back in the camera, which I thought was interesting. And like the only hint of yellow is coming from a light, like just hitting his face like perfectly at this perpendicular angle. I'm like, yes, lighting, cinematography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ludovica's good. She's really good. You know, like I, she's, we, we talk all the time about like the intent and what, you know, what I was trying to go for. And then, you know, we'll make a plan. And then all of a sudden something will happen that I did not plan. I'll be like, Luda, what, what is this? And she's like, trust me, just trust me. And like, she's really, she's always right every time. But like, <laughs> um, but I think that that yellow light that you're talking about is a Ludovica choice um, that works really, really, really well. To me, I saw that as after the entire day where he's pushing his thoughts on her, we'll get into that next. But I, I saw that particular moment where it's like, he's finally thinking about, like you, like you said, like yellow is, is Renisha's color. He's thinking, okay, wait, this entire day I've made this, this thing about me. I've been making it about what I want. I've been making it about what I think she should do. And like the light hitting, it was like almost like this, you know, like a light bulb moment. It's like, I need to think about what I've done for the entire and I just thought that was just, it was such a small, but I think a very important moment considering the whole context of the entire film. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, it was like, uh, 
I love I love one thing with films like especially films like this where we don't have a lot of dialogue and I love this tool through um not only the actors acting but from the lighting and the direction I, I just love when films give me like those kind of moments where it's almost like a still shot and like a snapshot yeah. you can tell a whole you can tell the entire story from that one scene you have for for Evan it's that scene and then for Renisha it's her in the bathtub and then taking out her braids and I was like yo for a black woman like to be taking out, taking out her braids so easily I'm like yes she has been through a lot she's fed up she's done and she wants this entire day to end and I was like I think only a black woman would understand the significance of her taking out her braids I agree you know it, again I've had a lot of questions um about that but usually it's never, it's never like, I know what that's about. Usually it comes from white people and they're like, what is that about? <laughs> it seems significant. And I'm like, well, it's kind of not, but it is, but not in the ways that you think it is. Yeah. yeah Cause I was just thinking like, I'm like her, her braids are all the way down to her butt. So she's sat in that chair for like a good, um, at least 10 hours getting her braids up for a woman to be like, I'm just going to randomly take out my braids, my newly freshly done braids. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, she's fed up. She's done. She's over it. She's just like, <laughs> I was like, yes, I feel you. I'm like, take those braids out. <laughs> um, but um, so we're going to get into now to the day, that that awful, awful day. Um, so it began about the night before where Renisha and Amber go to a bar and they meet these two guys. And Amber to me is an interesting character because she's someone that I know. She's I've, I've encountered women like her. Like when they meet a cute guy, they're like, oh, I want to like, let's hang out with these cute guys. And they're kind of like ignoring you. You're like, nah, I'm not feeling it. I'm ready to go home. Mm -hmm. And they're like, tell you, no, no, like my enjoyment matters more in this moment, even though they're supposed to be celebrating Renisha's new job. She's like, I want to hang with these white guys. And you're like, and I'm like, I've been in situations like that where my friends do not want to listen to me. And then she's thinking then the whole gummy bears and she's like, oh, it's sweet. I'm like, do you know that it's sweet? Mm -hmm. that's me you're assuming like you don't know if that's poison like you don't know if that's arsenic but girl we, we live in dangerous times <laughs> so i want to so ask you about amber and that and that, that particular scene and how and how you went about building this, the scene and and yeah. working with the actors because i just thought it was interesting where you know like when we talk about assault like we, we always say it's not the victim's fault and but then you know there's something in the back of our minds where i was thinking i shouldn't have done this i shouldn't have taken the gummy bear i shouldn't have drunk but then when you, the way you structure it is like a lot of things happen because of peer pressure and it's not you're playing a blame game but it's like that's the reality of the situation yeah i mean there's a few points that i'm making the first point is you can you're allowed to wear whatever you want to wear you're allowed to drink as much as you want to drink. You're allowed to do whatever drugs you want to do. You can be flirty. You can dance with people. You can kiss people. You can do all those things. It does not invite or justify rape mm -hmm. at all. So I wanted to create a very typical condition for which those things occur um, to challenge the audience and remind them that she can make those choices. and what happened to her in the end still shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it also adds to the, the victim blaming that, that survivors do sometimes, especially in um, situations like this where it's not so explicit. But you know, I, I feel like victim blaming actually goes on in all cases. Like even if you're walking down a dark street, you're gonna blame yourself for walking alone in the dark. Like victim blaming is very much a part of the experience and the culture um, that our society upholds. Like 
we're always very, very, very quick to blame or question the victim. Yeah, no, it's something that's ingrained in us. And, and speaking from the perspective of, of, of a Black woman, like growing up in our, like I grew up in the Caribbean, but even like for North America, like I know like there's something that we, that would be like, as young girls, we told to watch our behavior from very, very young. We were told to dress modestly or don't wear shorts too short. You're like, no, don't, don't show your, don't show, even if you don't have breasts yet, but like, don't show your chest too, too, uh, too, too much. You know, don't be too fast. Mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, that's a lot know, of responsibility for women. Exactly, right? And we're, and it's like, you're always telling yourself, but why should I have to watch the way I dress exactly. when the person who is leering at me is, you should be addressing things and you should be telling them, watch the eyes, exactly. the eyes up, what, mind the business. And it's, exactly. the, and it's like, for like you're saying, the message is like, we are supposed to be able to do all of these things without having to worry about what exactly. could possibly happen. And exactly. I remember like, when I turned um, 14, and I started to go to house parties. My brother, who's 10 years older than me, um, he sat on my sister and I one day and we were getting ready. He was like, girls, let's sit down. Cause it's my twin sister. And she was like, girls, we're gonna sit down. We're gonna have a discussion. And he's like, he gave us these all of this long list of tips on how to watch ourselves when we go out. Like when we go party or even go to clubbing. Even if we just go to a fair or a fair, he's like, when you, if you go to some place for drinks, don't let anybody open drinks for you. He's like, if you, if you, if you put a drink down, don't take it back up get a new drink every time. He's like, it's gonna cost money, but it, that, that you, you don't want to take the risk. And he was like, if you see a guy with like a long finger, you know, watch him because he probably has drugs. And you're saying that guys would put like drugs underneath their finger, you know, to slip it into their drinks. And he's like, what, like always be aware, look, and, and sometimes I still do now, like always look for exits whenever you go someplace. We always talk about how black um, parents have to talk with their sons. And I'm like, yeah, but we, we girls get to talk too. Our, our talk is something. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're exactly right. And think about how that adds to just like all of the extra stress and complexity of Renisha's existence, like head in a swivel, constantly worrying about her own protection. Um, and now when we think about how, you know, um, Amber fits into that, Amber's, you know, also has a, I, I mean, as I think that's an, an, an easy kind of misunderstanding, but, um, you know, the reason why Renisha went out that night was not to celebrate her new job. It was to like go spend time with her friend that needed mm -hmm. to vent. So the whole night was surrounded around Amber to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, Amber's stressed and tired, clearly is not enjoying work right now. So she um, needed to vent. She wanted to get loose. She wanted to have a nice time. She wanted attention from men. She was fine with that and she needed mm -hmm. She needed Renisha to be there with her while she did it. Um, I've had friend like, friends like that too. I've been in experiences where I'm like, I'm really not feeling this. This is a skeezy situation. I really want to go home, but I also don't want to leave my friend here. Yeah, because that's the girl code. Like we come together, we leave together, right? <laughs> yeah, and so I think there's there's an element of that too in the concept of protection. Is that like you know I don't think Renisha wanted to leave. Um, Amber alone, even though she needed to go home and maybe didn't feel great about the situation. Um, and that's something that I think I also tried to kind of communicate um, when they're on the dance floor. Like she kind of keeps turning to Amber and checking in on her as Amber's getting more and more like out of control to the, but like she has no like ability to stop it or be present with it. She can only just see it. And I think that's a really like sad and, and I don't know, um, vulnerable place to be in that sense of isolation is something i think that carries through for the rest of the film because um 
it starts there in the in the bar with her watching Amber, and this is when the drugs begin to take effect. Like she begins to lose lucidity and she begins to become more disoriented. And there is that sense of isolation where everything is happening around her. And then like eventually she's taken to the hotel and things these things happen to her. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, again, she's like with the way how the, the, the scenes are framed, like she's usually off the side or by herself. And like mm-hmm. like Mike is uh, not Mike, sorry, um Evan is watching her and then um Amber's on the bed. Mm-hmm. And there's that sense of isolation. And then for the rest of the day, as they're going to the police station, all these things, everything is happening around her. She's almost like, there's a word I'm looking for, and it's not isolation, where she's almost- Detached? Yes. She, she's detached, where that you can, you can tell where she's just like, not only mentally, but just physically. Yes. She doesn't feel present mm-hmm. in any things, which I think was, I think, I don't know how you did it, but it just, it was done so well where it felt almost like Brittany was just floating and she was just like, I'm just here and and everything is happening around her. And like that's, and I think that's something when we talk about things with like assault or abuse where like you have victims who say, I just felt like all of these things were happening to me. And I think you telegraph that really well in the film. And it also shows not, and it shows, and it comes up a lot with regards to race because she's this lone black woman and she's surrounded by all of these white people. At the bar, it's only her and Amber. And then once Amber starts to fade into the background, it's just her and these white guys. And then at the then the person who rapes her is white. And then at the clinic, she's surrounded by these white guys. And I thought it was interesting where at the beginning of the film, like once they came together, we got these happy moments with Evan and, and Renisha, where they're living their life as a couple and they're talking about their dolls, they're talking about their daily lives, talking about what outfit she'll wear for the first day of work. And then she's in the car and then, we got a flashback again to her outside, isolated, waiting for Mike. He turns up 15 minutes again. He doesn't understand what she's saying. She's like, I'm uncomfortable. You left me here. And you and he's kind of like almost brushing it off. He said, I'll do better. And I'm like thinking, but will you? And then you go into the backyard and well, lo and behold, more white people. She's like, again, this one, this black woman alone and isolated, watching all of these people around her. And I just want to ask you about how you use you're discussing race without actually discussing race. And I wanted to ask you about creating those scenes and that structure and like how the, and we're able to weave this discussion of race. Because you know, people say, oh, don't, I don't want any preaching. I'm like, she don't preach at all. Like you're just you're just showing this is how it really is. Yeah, but I think that's it right there, right? I, again, I, I personally, as an audience member, I don't like anything preaching at me and I don't really understand the point of it. Like. I, I'm less convinced by the film um, being emotionally authentic or like intellectually correct if they need to go through all this work to prove to me that it, it exists. I think humans are humans. We all are kind of motivated and you know made up of the same things, especially when it comes to psychology. Mm-hmm. And it's not hard to ask the question or to explore the idea of a black woman feeling uncomfortable in a, like at at a barbecue full of white strangers. Um, I don't need to talk about it. I don't need to even say it because it's obvious. Mm -hmm. It's so obvious. And I think one of the things that the movie does so well is very rarely are we in like, very rarely are 
we watching movies that actually center the internal life in the psyche of a black woman. It just doesn't happen. Even when movies are about black women, a lot of times the filmmakers are really concerned with like how white people are going to understand it or process it. So there's an extra explanation or the, the point of view is slightly shifted so it can include them. And it's like, you do that, you fail because just center the person just like white people do, we've been able to empathize with white people. We can understand where white people are going through because they're completely centered. So just do the same. Um, so that was the idea. And I think that's why it, um, the concept of it not being preachy um, is successful um, because people are just living with her. They're just mm -hmm. fully, fully, fully seeing her. It didn't take much. You put Renisha in the middle of the frame, you eliminate any and all other people you reveal a whole bunch of white people who are also looking at you and touching you and commenting. Like, that's the other thing about that scene that I love so much. They don't talk to her like a human. Nope. Like they're like obsessed with how beautiful she is. Like it's shocking. It's like, like oh my God, like a black and she's beautiful. Cause, cause like, that's the point. Like, don't, that's not the standard of beauty. That's not the default assumption. So, and like, I hate that. I hate that so much. <laughs> I, I don't listen. I feel it <laughs> so much because when that particular because it starts not only there but it's also from um it begins in the bar too because yes the guys that come up to Amber and and to and to Renisha, they're commenting on their looks yep and yep. They, they they talk about oh you're so beautiful you're here whatever and I'm like you have that and then you have the the barbecue and it's like I've been there like my hair is short but when I had like long hair people are like oh my god your hair is so beautiful and like going to touch my hair like this yep, the yep. bodily autonomy is not recognized that's at all okay. and that's something we have to reinforce and again that's one of the things that the film is talking about with regards to race where and consent because you're thinking that consent applies to the rape and i'm like not only rape it applies to everything it applies to how people approach her how people speak to her how people touch her mm -hmm. it applies to how mike is treating her he that he completely ignores what she wants to do and how she's feeling because of what he wants i'm like these white people keep foisting their wants and their needs on renisha and i'm like that's consent right there that's the discussion of consent it's not only about assault it's about just existing as a black woman yep. in in white spaces that's right carolyn oh yes <laughs> Let me, let me keep something. I was like, oh, I'm like, these white people. <laughs> and it's like, you, I, like, you know, and then again, as a black woman, I'm thinking, am I being too hypercritical? Am I being too, you know, no. you have these thoughts? I'm like, am I being too harsh? And I'm no. like, nah, we, we've experienced these. We're, we know what we're talking about because this is real life. Like, it's on screen, but I'm like, this is very real. These are situations that we encounter daily. And then if you have to, and like you said, you put it with regards to uh, adding a white man who's like it seems like he's supportive because he's like you have to, i want you to you have to be tested it because you know like i think he's almost like this I, the word that's coming to my head is oxymoronic but it doesn't make sense but that's where i'm gonna go with where you're like thinking he's not accusing her in their discussion I, he's not accusing her his conversation is he's speaking to her very calmly and he's making he's like it starts with him being very understanding mm -hmm. but then once he gets the idea of the of there needing to be a test go at that they need to be tested which she should be tested but he's not inquiring if she's ready for it he's not inquiring like what he, he he's not thinking what this test entails because we as women know what a gynecological exam is like <laughs> he's not thinking how invasive uh, a rape kit is he's not thinking about again she has to open up herself to a complete stranger 
to, to invade her personal space emotionally, mentally, psychologically, all of these things physically. And he's not thinking she just went through this traumatic experience where someone ignored her wants and needs. And I'm like, sir, you're doing the same thing, but just from a, a more, almost at, you're, you're caring, but you're not caring enough and you're not yeah, caring yeah. in the way you should be. Right. So mm-hmm. could you tell me about that part of the script and that part of the, the, the film and how you went through that with, um, with Brittany and with, and with um, Will with regards to creating that, their, the slow dissolve of their, because I saw that as a breakdown of their relationship, because I'm like, I don't know how their relationship is going to survive after a day like that, especially after his behavior. Again, it wasn't hard. So let's go back to the, to the, um, the first date. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of, there are quite a few people out there who do not like the fact that um, Evan gets to be with Renisha. They think it's realistic. They think that, um, like, they don't think that she makes sense and that, you know, she would just never choose someone like that. And it's funny because those people never ask me why, why she did or where in the movie does that kind of like reveal itself. And it's really, it's to me, it's really obvious. They are having dinner and Renisha's cagey about her job. And she's kind of in a slowly opening her up to talk about what she wants to actually do with her life. And she polices herself. She kind of stops herself from really getting into it. And she says, I don't know what I'm talking about. And Evan says, I think you always know what you're talking about. And I think that's, I think that's like great ingredients for all love, right? To see another person fully. Looks like Evan saw her. Mm-hmm. listening to her and yeah, no, he listened. yeah and I think that's that's why it went further and I think that's the thing that holds their relationship together that she does feel seen and heard so if that's what the foundation is all Evan's got to do is not see and hear her and then the thread is pulled yeah and I thought it was an interesting flip for their relationship because like when they go to be when he's taking her to be tested the idea to be tested comes from him Mm-hmm. 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 she doesn't say i want to go to the police station she's just needed quite and and i think it's interesting because this is another scene where she's isolated again they're at amber's house so she wakes up from sleeping and you hear her talking and i put it in my notes i'm like that's just like any conversation in any house where you you were in your bedroom and you hear people talking about you in the living mm-hmm. room and you're like wondering what are they saying you're, and you're, you know, you're being nosy, like, my parents talking about me, and my sister's talking about me, and then lo and behold, they are talking about her, and the conversation eventually becomes more clear, and you're, and I'm just thinking, this is a, this is something that happened to her, but you're not talking with her about it. That's right, that's and, right. And Amber comes to the decision with Evan, okay, let's go to the to police station. He never wants to ask her, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Yep. He never asked her, he, I don't, I don't think he ever asked her if she's even in pain because like you yeah. never, like she could have been physically in pain. He never says that. And I just thought that, that the way you did that switch in his personality was very, I think was genius because it, he does it with the same tone that he speaks to her always. Yes. He doesn't change his, he doesn't become angry. He doesn't become upset. You would think he's having a regular conversation with her, but then you're like, no, you're yeah. using almost the same cajoling way to get her to go along with you. And I'm like, sir, pause. <laughs> Well, let's, let's just be real though. That isn't a change in his personality. And that's the other thing I'm trying to say about like humans, like we're motivated by a lot of things. And I think as that relates to white allyship, 
when it relates to like allyship amongst like non-female feminists, men in particular, um, it takes a lot to constantly be present with the fact that you should not be centering yourself, but you should be centering the person you're allied with. And Evan was in a particular moment of vulnerability and stress. And those are always the times when you'll see people who are even like, you know, even like if we think about like athletes, you like the whole point of like a, like an elite athlete is being able to like maintain like perfection despite like the high levels of like stress and pressure. Um, but like all human beings really struggle with that. It's hard to stay on, on the right track when you've got all of those other things going on, which another, by the way, just sidebar, which is why I think like black people are so incredible because we've been under so much just shit. <laughs> and yet we still manage to thrive and find ways to live. And it's beyond me. Anyway, so there's that. But going back to how that like applies to Evan, you know, so he slipped. He he got a little more selfish. He stopped thinking about the fact that he's not thinking about someone else, namely the person he loves that he's trying to protect. Mm. And I think that there are other like societal uh, factors that come into that. I think that, you know, straight men feel like sometimes that they, their, their masculinity is in question if they're not doing the right thing as a man to protect, you know, their woman, whatever that means. Mm. So I think that um, there's probably some of that in, in Evan too, thinking, well, no, no, someone's got to protect her. Someone's got to bring this to justice. So it's going to be me. It's my job. And I think that he gets more and more frustrated because it's not panning out. And he's seeing that as a reflection on him. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is a reflection on him, which is yeah. crazy. So yeah, I think that's always there, you know, in his personality. It's just that, you know, he hasn't been in a situation where those things are kind of put under great strain. Mm -hmm. And, and could you tell me about um, with regard when you cast when you cast Brittany because you said you you had the idea for her for this role from the beginning. Um, when you spoke to her about this and when you, when she saw the script and um, was there anything that you guys discussed with regards to what would happen and how um, how she would play this because like she she does such a fantastic job as I mentioned with the little moments and with her expressions and could you tell me a little bit about like, during production and and filming like what uh, what kind of conversations you you guys had. To, to create those those moments, especially the moments where she's feeling so isolated. Because I just can't get past how she, how she just feels so isolated and it just translates so well to screen. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, again, she's a black woman, I'm a black woman. There's a lot that's shared and understood, right? So it was more about getting Brittany to kind of unpack those moments for herself when she felt that way, um, or just to talk through things with her, um, then kind of like preparing. Um, I think a lot of this stuff like for her was absolutely kind of like innate, you know? Like I think, I think it was more about trying to understand who Renisha is as a person. Like what are the yeah. things that were motivating her to, to be open to an idea versus not, or to let her hair down at this point or not. 
Um, but yeah. Yeah, no, I just like I just I honestly can't get. I think her, I think because even though I know the film was done in like um, released in twenty nineteen mm -hmm. um, at festivals. Um, I just think I would say it's one of my favorite performances from an actress that I've seen um, probably going from like last year into this year. And I just and it's funny to me that some of my favorite performances from black um, performers, I, I wouldn't even suggest black performance from any performer. Um, over the last year has been where people are in where, where you can tell the actors are in touch with, with the characters because they relate so much to them. And I, I would I have to mention like Steven Yun in Minari and and then um and even talking about Chavit Bozeman in Myrini's Black Bottom. Um and I, I'm gonna I I drew, I kind of drew a parallel from his one of his monologues where he talks about his father being becoming a vigilante for his mother uh, for the mother's rape. And I kind of thought about Evan in, this, in, in the same way where Evan was so concerned about getting justice for Renisha, where he didn't think about what happened. And he kind of left her to flounder on her own, on her own the same way that um, uh, Levy's father did to him and his mother. And I, I just thought it was like a super interesting parallel that I drew. And then like other performances, Judas and the Black Messiah and Andrew Day in Billy in United States versus Billy Holiday. And I just thought I'm like all of these performances that I've gravitated towards are by these actors and these actresses just getting really in touch with these um, emotions. And then it's just like situations that we, even if you don't personally experience them, but you like you you see you you've enough experienced enough things where you can see just a bit of your own. Um, your own history in them and I just think that your film is just one of those because I've experienced some, some of these situations and I'm like I've been in some of these spaces and I just think it's beautiful when you have like directors and writers like yourself and I know people say a lot especially as critics who say we put any human experiences on the screen but I'm like it's important because sometimes watching these kind of situations on screen does help us to process and it does help us to like speak to other people because like you could use this film you talk about allyship and you can show this film to a white man and say what do you notice anything wrong? Like, what is wrong with what he's doing? Mm -hmm. it almost, it's almost like an instructional video. And it's like, can you tell me what Evan has done that you think if you were ever in a situation, God forbid, you should do, what, what would you do differently, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, seriously, it's just like, like I, can, I can imagine, like, my mom would say, what would you do differently in this situation? my mom all the time what would you do differently today have you learned your lesson <laughs> and when we're talking about allyship sometimes you got to be like white people this is not this is not what being an ally is about don't center yourself i being an ally is listening being an ally is like that's uh, like you said like evan failed as an ally but he also failed as a boyfriend he failed as, yes. her, as her partner mm -hmm. sure and did i remember thinking when i watched it because i watched it twice um, like people, I can I can clearly see people watching this film and say, but she's making it about him. But I'm like, no. The way I see it is, it's very much about Renisha. It's but it's a film about how everyone around her fails her. That's right. And, they, and we, like we talked at the beginning, we talked about the politics. Every support system around her that's supposed to help her fails her because even if you look at Amber, um, Amber in a way kind of failed her too because. She let Renisha go off by herself. Renisha was looking up for Amber, but Amber wasn't really looking up for Renisha. Mm -hmm. And then even at the end, when she does come back, um, she goes to the hospital. It's interesting that the only other at the end, the only people that really do show her compassion at the end are two black women. You have Amber and then the nurse at mm -hmm. the, um, where she does get the rape kit tested is performed by another black woman. And this is the first time anyone has told her, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. She's like, if you don't want to say anything, you don't have to say anything. And she thanks her. And she says, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to me. 
And I'm like, it's so important that we have where, again, that's sisterhood. That's like Black sisterhood where we're like, at the end of the day, we only have us to turn to. Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, it's about seeing a person fully, right? And I think, I think Black folks have been taught how to empathize and see everyone else, mm-hmm. um, but they don't see us. Uh, not all, it, like they have to be taught. <laughs> and, and and that's scary, right? So um, in some ways, you know, Amber did mess up, but this is going back to, you know, how we're all human and we're under great stress. Amber called Renisha because she had a bad day at work. Mm. I think Amber has a lot of bad days at work. Mm. And maybe Amber didn't have the capacity to even think about another person. It doesn't mean that like, again, she gets a pass, Yeah. but it's to recognize that. And, you know, the same thing goes for the, you know, staff at the hospital. They come off as cold because it's another day for them where they're getting paid very little and are very overwhelmed. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they can't even take on feeling anything for you on top of the fact that they're white and they probably don't even see you. Um, so there, there's a lot going on there. Um, so yeah, I think Nurse Peg is someone who's very good at her job. Um, and a part of her job is to be compassionate to all people. Um, but I think also she's a black woman. So she just saw her. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap up, because we've been talking for a while, um, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about the names and for you to tell me if my interpretation of the name kind of around like you hear test pattern. The first part is test, and like obviously you're thinking about the rape kit, like she's getting for a test. I was thinking, how absurd is it that a woman has to be tested to prove that she's raped? And mm-hmm. how ridiculous is it that for something as traumatic as that, black women, women in general, but in this we're talking about a black woman, she has to give quantifiable proof of this terrible thing that's happened to her. And then there's the pattern part of it where you know, we talk about the systemic and, and the systematic um, ways that everything around her is failing and the racism in um, politics and everything. But then it's just, these are things that happen every day to black women. These are, black women are assaulted and raped and, and, and abused every day. And like, there's a pattern to everything. Like, if you see her, this situation with uh, Renisha is gonna happen again. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you about, um, about just about the name. Yeah, so the name, so a test pattern is, you know, back in the day with um, TV channels that are off air, sometimes you would see the color bars. Um, that's a test pattern. And the idea, or even before like a VHS tape or something, but that's what you use to adjust kind of like the focus and colors and the receiver of your television screen. Um, and I see this film as a, you know, a placeholder for people to kind of dial in and adjust their perceptions and assumptions and ideology and politics. Um, so that's why it's called test pattern, but it's convenient because those words do evoke those other thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so we're going to wrap up and I want to thank you so much for speaking to me today to <clears throat> sorry, Shatara, like this was a great discussion. I'm so happy that I got this chance to speak to you. And um, is there anything you would like to say about the film or um, or about any future projects that you have coming up? No, I just I just want folks to keep watching it and keep talking about it. Um, it's been so nice to hear your thoughts on it. It's been good to to talk to another Black woman and, and it confirms a lot of the things that I thought <laughs> you saw a while of it, which is great. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for speaking to me. And I hope that you and your family stay safe in these COVID times. 
and that um, I can't wait. To, I, I can't wait to see what else you do in the future because I think you like you have a that your voice is very clear as a director, and I think what you're trying to say is something that everyone needs to see and everyone needs to hear, to hear as we're talking about you know, acknowledging things. And I just want to thank you again for creating this film, and I hope and wish you great success in the future. <laughs> Thanks, Carolyn. Take good care and have a good weekend. You too. Bye. Bye. Again, thank you to Shatara for joining me to speak about her new film, Test Pattern. You can find the film streaming on select digital cinemas at the kinomarquee.com site. Uh, go there to support Shatara as well as other independent filmmakers. You can find other interviews for Carolyn Talks on the But Why The Podcast site. And as usual, I've been taking part in the African American Film Critics Association virtual roundtables. And recently, we've had the great opportunity to speak to some amazing filmmakers and actors and actresses. We've spoken to Rada Blank about her film, The 40 Version, as well as Kerry Washington and Ariana DeBose about their film, Prom. Both films are currently streaming on Netflix. And recently, we've spoken to Mara Hill and Jill Marie Jones about their new show, Delilah, currently showing on OWN every Tuesday night after Queen Sugar. We've also spoken to Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall about the Coming to America sequel. And we've also had the great opportunity, this was a fantastic discussion with filmmaker Philippe Lecote about his new film, Night of the Kings. I think it's a fantastic and beautifully shot film. You can go on the Neon website to find where you can watch it virtually. And for more personal news, I recently started a YouTube channel. It's under my name, Carolyn Hines. And my first episode is Beyond the Romance, Cinderella and the Four Nights, where I talked with my friend, Laura Sirico about her favorite Korean drama, Cinderella and Four Nights. We had a blast. It's amazing. And please look forward to more content about that. And as well, I'll be adding more Carolyn Talks interviews there as well. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CarrieCNH12. That's C-A-R-R-I-E-C-N-H-1-2. You can follow my hashtag Saturday Night Sci-Fi where I live tweet films and TV shows on Netflix or Hulu or other streaming platforms with the hashtag Saturday Night Sci-Fi. And we begin every Saturday night at 10 p.m. Eastern as well. For my K-drama and Asian drama watches, I've been using the hashtag um, Dramas with Carrie. So every weeknight around 8 p.m. or later, depending on the show schedule, you can find me live tweeting about those shows. And please offer any suggestions for shows you would like my comments on. You can go on my YouTube channel and leave comments there as well. And for my Twitter, you can find pinned tweets for any recent articles that has been published or for, again, the AFCA roundtable events that we've been doing and any other announcements that I will be making. Everyone, until next time, please stay safe. Oh,